Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended for personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional for any decisions regarding your health. Today's topic is gut inflammation. And in the past decade, I think in large part, thanks to the holistic community of doctors, which I consider myself a part of, as well as the conventional community, there's been a bigger appreciation of the importance of our gut to our general well-being. Uh, and it's also brought it into, I think, a sharper focus. We frequently hear terms such as leaky gut or gut inflammation being used to describe what's wrong with our digestive system. And I'm sure all of you, like myself, we want to know which foods are good to decrease gut inflammation and which foods are bad. So today, my guest, Dr. Shilpa Ravella, I think is the perfect person. She's a gastroenterologist with a special expertise in, gas, in transplant gastroenterology, and we'll talk about that. Her new book, A Silent Fire, which I really enjoyed, is, takes a really in-depth look at how immunology of the gut affects our health. Dr. Ravella is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, and she has published numerous articles on the interaction between the immune system and the digestive system. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Shilpa Ravella to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. It's such a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Um, so I always like to ask background questions because I'm always interested in how, especially in medicine, people navigate and get into their different fields. So for you, my question is, why did you choose gastroenterology as your specialty and especially maybe super specializing in transplant gastroenterology? Because that's a little bit unusual. Sure. Well, I really liked actually when I started out the combination of procedures and uh, clinic based visits in gastroenterology. And that was initially what drew me into the field to have that dichotomy. And as I learned more about nutrition and the gut microbiome, I actually was very interested in those topics as well. And gastroenterology seemed like a very natural fit. For about seven years of my career, I was also very fortunate to work with intestinal and multivisceral multiple organ transplant patients. And th these are patients, uh, you know, for example, patients with Crohn's disease who have the majority of their intestines resected and develop short bowel syndrome. Those patients may need an intestinal transplant. So I, I worked very closely with the intestinal transplant team at Columbia Medical Center uh, and uh, took care of those patients for the better part of a decade. You know, I was looking a little bit at your bio, which was quite interesting, because I think you went to medical school or did residency at, at University of Pittsburgh. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Did you know, did you know Dr. Starzl? He's like one of the pioneers, obviously, in liver transplants. And uh, so I was wondering if you got some of your exposure there. Was that, was that, were you exposed to it at that time or not yet? Well, I didn't know Starzl personally or anything like that, but yeah. uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Starzl was performing intestinal transplants in uh, dogs uh, several decades ago prior to uh, the transplants that we now have today. Uh, so I didn't, you know, as a medical student, I was still sort of trying to figure out what field I wanted to go into. Mm -hmm. And it was very early on in my career. Okay. I knew that I wanted to do internal medicine. And I also knew that 
I probably did not want to become a surgeon. So those were kind of the right. two things. Well, that's what happens in medicine. You know, you, I always tell people, because a lot of times people always ask me, why did I go into the field that I went into? And it's mm-hmm. funny, you do, you go through this process. Like I knew for myself, I always loved immunology. I think how you do. And then I was trying to figure out how do I work that into a practice? And I didn't want to be pigeonholed into just either seeing older men or young women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I probably liked primary care, but I wanted that specialty. So it's kind of how I morphed into my area. So it sounds like you did also. The other thing, which is really fascinating, I know that you worked with Dr. Cato at uh, Columbia, because you mentioned it in your book. And he is, he is phenomenal. I mean, he's world renowned for his 20 hour operations, removing multiple organs. I mean, doing heroic feats. So I, I can't even imagine what that was like. And, and, and what role did you play? I'm just curious as far as, uh, in seeing these patients. Was it the follow up care after? Was it prepping them before surgery? I'm just curious. Sure. So I would do both the inpatient and some outpatient care as well. We have a dedicated team uh, with uh, the nurse practitioner and the surgeons who are involved, Dr. Cato himself. So so after uh, the operations are conducted, I would uh, round on these patients post-operatively. I would also manage the GI evaluations. And then I was also involved on the pre-transplant uh, side of things. These patients tend to have a lot of different needs when it comes to their nutrition and their gastrointestinal issues, both pre- and post-transplant. And were you involved also, because I, I, I got to assume, you know, the intestinal transplants, like every other transplant, they have to be on immunosuppressive drugs. Were you having to like follow them on this? To, you know, is it? Yes, exactly. I would uh, deploy immunosuppressing drugs in these populations. So, so we would have to use drugs like tacrolimus, uh, for example, in order to suppress their immune systems post-transplant. Mm-hmm. And with uh, transplantation of the intestines, we are also transplanting the load of gut germs as well. So it's a really? very immunogenic organ. Yes. And how would you do that? Was that like with a fecal transplant type of thing or no? Well, just the uh, commensal organisms uh, that exist in the intestines. But where so would unlike they come other from? organs. Oh, from uh, other organs? From the uh, donor? Uh, yes, exactly. Oh, wow. 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 So unlike other organs that tend to be more stale or sterile with the liver or the kidney, these organs uh, are very highly immunogenic. So, so we do need to deploy uh, greater amounts of immunosuppressive therapy for these patients. You know, one of the things I tell my patients, because, you know, my background uh, in my fellowship training was in multiple things, was in immunology, infectious disease, and allergy. And I, a lot of times when I go through things with my patients, because I see a lot of patients with irritable bowel disease and, and issues that they're concerned, you know, that's coming from their gut. And I tell them, you know, when I trained back in the um, late 1980s, early 1990s, when we thought about the immune system, we only thought about the bone marrow, you know, producing the B cells and the thymus producing the T cells. And I draw little pictures for my patients. And then I show them, you know, and today we really know that the intestine, the small intestine is a huge immune organ. And, you know, I think it's, it's surprising to so many doctors because we, we tended to think, especially going through medical school, and I know in physiology, it was like the intestines mm-hmm. was just like this transit system, <laughs> like the subway right, system. Right. Food's <laughs> just going through there, making a little bit of stop here and there. Some of it gets off in certain places. Some of it just keeps on going until it gets, right. you know, to the large bowel. But it's it's really an amazing immune organ and so involved in our overall health. It truly is. I couldn't agree more. And when you think of 
the fact that much of our immune system does live in the gut. And with the attention that has been given to the gut microbiome, or just the microbes, you know, that live within us, on top of us, around us, the gut microbiome uh, plays a central part in immunology and inflammation as well. And we've been learning more and more about kind of the conversations that these microbes are having with our immune cells at all hours of the day. And we know that, for example, in in uh, mice uh, who are grown up sterilely in plastic bubbles, they they have immune systems that are very malformed. Uh, they are very jumpy, very prone to autoimmunity. So the so the microbes in our gut play a huge part in the development of our immune system from day one. Yeah. Now you wrote this really interesting book, A Silent Fire. What motivated you to write it, and how did you decide on the title? Well, I. So for the first question, the motivations, I think, were several fold. I, I would have many, many patients coming into my clinic with chronic inflammation of some kind. So as a gastroenterologist, even in the general gastroenterology clinics, I would see patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease, a lot of irritable bowel syndrome patients. And we know that in some of these functional disorders, inflammation can play a part as well. And patients would often ask me questions about the anti-inflammatory diet. What exactly is it? They've been hearing so much about it for a very long time, but they wanted to sort of hone in on the actual uh, specifics of this diet and what was fact, what was fiction. And patients had tons of questions. So that was one motivator. And I also was very motivated by the stories of some of these scientists whom I portray in, in, in the book this whole idea of a silent fire or hidden inflammation, what it took for us to say that inflammation is now not just a consequence of disease, but also one potential root cause. And I thought that, that, that there were just fascinating stories uh, in that in that arena as well. Yeah, I, I think that you are a real student of immunology, as I like to think I am. I mean, I, as I was reading your book, I'm like, oh, God, she's going through all the classic people. And even mentioning, obviously, Eli... Um, Metchnikoff, if I'm saying his name right, I mean, who won the Nobel Prize in 1908 mm -hmm. for his work on the immune system. And he's really the original guy that came up with uh, that yogurt and <laughs> makes you live a long right. life. And, and people always associate with the Russians, but it was actually, I think, as you mentioned in the book, he was looking at these Bulgarian peasants and mm -hmm. he saw they were living these long lives from, a, you know, I'm sure a lot of it was their hardy lifestyle. But, you know, he made a, a statement that I think we need clarification is that he said, and you mentioned this in the book, eating in itself is an inflammatory act. How, how do you interpret that? Well, I think this goes back to this whole idea of relativity. So all of these concepts that we are talking about, whether it's inflammation or the anti-inflammatory diet, these are very relative concepts. So eating any meal, simply the fact that you are eating is, is, is going to inflame your body in some way. And so when we talk about the foods and the dietary patterns that are inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory. We're really talking about relatively how inflammatory are they? And is this a chronic insult? Does this lead to this chronic insidious inflammation that persists over time? Not, you know, this, this sort of transient type of inflammation in your body. Okay. Well, you bring up the key and the biggest question that I have for myself that I know my, my patients have, and it sounds like your patients have as well too, is which foods are good and which are bad. So I just like a little bit your ratings because I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of top people 
over the past three years, you know, from Alessio Fasano, who I know you probably know of mm-hmm. at Harvard, who's the celiac yes. expert. I've, I've, I've interviewed Walter Longo at USC, who is definitely the longevity expert. I've interviewed Peter Green at Columbia, who I'm sure you probably know is a colleague of yours. But, you know, you read a lot of things and, and even, you know, Stephen Gundry, who I met and I was on a podcast with on the James Altucher show, who wrote The Plant Paradox. You know, it's very confusing because, you know, most of the places, I, I like to hear your opinion because most of them say meat is inflammatory. I hear sometimes eggs are inflammatory. We hear that gluten is inflammatory. Dr. Uh, Gundry really promotes that lectins are inflammatory. And then finally, some people say that the nightshades. So it doesn't feel like there's anything left to eat. So why don't you take <laughs> us through, again, maybe your perspective, and obviously if it depends on what kind of condition a person has, but what what foods are are good for us and what do we have to watch out for? Sure. Happy to answer that. And one of the things to keep in mind is that there is a, there has been a paradigm shift. So when we are talking about chronic inflammatory disorders, we are not simply talking about autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And we are not simply talking about a diet that's applicable for a select population, for example, celiac patients, we are talking about the silent hidden inflammation that's tied to our biggest modern killers, heart disease, obesity, cancer, neurodegenerative disorders, uh, diabetes. So so chronic, all of these can now be labeled, at least in part, chronic inflammatory disorders. So when we talk about the foods to address all of these disorders, it's really a population health type of a diet. It's, it's meant for a broad array of, of folks today. Okay. And so the anti-inflammatory diet, when you look at the gamut of nutrition science conducted to date, when you look at history and evolution, and when you also look at the emerging science on how food affects the gut microbiome, it's actually quite an inclusive diet overall. So while, you know, there have been various iterations of the anti-inflammatory diet for, for many decades and even Prior to that, uh, the anti-inflammatory diet, as we know it today, based on the latest evidence to date, we are including foods like beans and grains. We are including so-called nightshade vegetables. Uh, including you know, those. Like so you, these you're saying are Correct. good ones. Okay. These are mm-hmm. all foods that are very healthful for us. They were part of the mm-hmm. traditional Mediterranean diet. They were what folks in rural Naples in the 1950s were eating when Ansel Keys first conducted his, his, his uh, nutrition studies. And, and this diet broadly is, is an incredibly pleasurable and inclusive diet. And we don't have anything to fear about, you know, trying to incorporate this diet into our lives. But there are certain things to keep in mind. For example, one of the confusing things is food preparation. So when you look at studies or even colloquially, we, we're calling a bagel wheat and we're also calling a sourdough bread wheat. But those are two intrinsically different uh, things and, and they have very different effects in your body. So food preparation is is a big part why of all they, this. Why are really those matters. two different? The sourdough bread because it's not made with yeast? I mean, they're both gluten-based Wheat, I assume, right? So what, what, how, what's your distinction between those two things, between the bagel, which we tend to think of as being inflammatory, being, you know, high glycemic mm-hmm. versus the sourdough bread? Why is that better? So a traditional sourdough bread fermented in the ancient tradition. So that type of bread has undergone all of these different changes that fermentation produces. Fermentation has been in our cultures for a very, very long time. And ancient cultures were doing this 
long ago. And what fermentation does is it changes the architecture of a food and it renders food less inflammatory. So it can actually increase uh, the content of nutrients in the food. It can decrease the sugars. It can decrease the so-called anti-nutrients like what uh, folks think of lectins or even gluten. And fermented foods sometimes actually have less gluten even than the gluten-free foods that you would see in grocery aisles. So fermentation really does change uh, not only the taste and the texture, but also the micronutrient and, and macronutrient quality of a food. So that that piece is kind of missing sometimes when we talk about anti-inflammatory and inflammatory foods. What school do you fall into? And it's funny because interviewing Peter Green, I expected him to be this, you know, anti-gluten warrior. And he was anything but. He was like, you know, people who don't have celiac disease shouldn't fear gluten. Uh Alessio Fasano, also with his Italian background and his charm, was like, you know, it's not terrible, but, you know, it, it does cause some leaky gut. I mean, he was really probably one of the originators of it. Where where do you fall in as far as gluten, you know, the breads, as far as being inflammatory, causing issues? Um, sure. I think, you know, they're both wonderful researchers and scientists. And where I would fall, uh, you know, I think that, the difference is that one, we sometimes we talk about a population wide diet. We talk about the anti inflammatory diet for the population. And in that context, we do know that gluten containing grains, whole grains are, are very helpful for the immune system. Whole grains in many different trials, including randomized control trials have been shown to lower markers of inflammation and fermentation itself can also lower the levels of gluten in food. So gluten is not something that we should fear in that context. The majority of us should not fear gluten. Now, there is evidence in certain disorders for gluten avoidance. Most of us are familiar with avoiding gluten in celiac disease, but then there's also non-celiac wheat sensitivity in which we may need to avoid gluten, maybe not as rigorously as we do need to avoid it in celiac disease, but non-celiac wheat sensitivity is also emerging and, and folks do avoid gluten in that context. And then beyond that, there are maybe subsets of autoimmune disease where anecdotally folks have found some relief with avoiding gluten. But this is a very small portion of the population. When we look at population at large, we, we, we find that gluten is, it's not a scary food. All right. That's good to know. I know that you mentioned in your book, I, I happen to like it a lot too, like farro, like the ancient grains you say tend to be also relatively healthy. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think, you know, we have so many different options beyond wheat and, and there are so many different grains now on grocery shelves, even though we tend to focus on wheat. And a lot of these ancient grains, uh, uh, millet, buckwheat, farro, you know, a lot of these ancient grains are, are especially adept at calming inflammation in, in, in the body. Really? What about rice? I mean, rice is eaten so much in the Asian world, obviously worldwide. You know, I should say in Europe also. Um, and, you know, again, here it's taken as, oh, it's a high glycemic food. It's probably inflammatory. I mean, again, that whole relationship between uh, glycemic index and inflammation, do you agree with that? Or do you think there, there's really finer points to that? I think it's important to look at the actual type of whole food that we are eating, um, you know, because sometimes the idea of the glycemic index can be confusing and we can end up avoiding or including healthful or harmful foods. And when you look at the whole food, you know, for example, taking rice uh, into consideration, white rice, you know, certainly is not as helpful as 
uh, uh, brown rice or different colored varieties of rice, uh, red rice, black rice, you know, because all of these whole grain types of foods, as we know, are very highly anti-inflammatory. So when I talk to patients, I often encourage them to try to uh, minimize or stay away from the white rice, but try to incorporate some of these colorful rices as well, because as we know, the colorful foods are a lot of the foods that we want to be eating. They have the most uh, phytochemicals like the polyphenols, and and those polyphenols are incredible for managing inflammation, and they're even metabolized by our gut germs. So so I try to... uh, ask patients to focus on a variety of grains and also within each grain category, variety of rices uh, rather than just sticking to what we know. I think some of our listeners too would be so pleased to know because I, I found this little nugget of information in your book saying that even if you eat a food that's probably not so great for you, like a hamburger, like on a bun, if you put a couple of slices of avocado and tomato, you're starting to <laughs> neutralize it. Is that really true? It sounds too good to be true. Well, it's not a panacea. Again, I think this is a journey because I think a lot of folks, when they start out with a 100% Western diet and try overnight to go to, you know, a high plant-based diet, there are physiologic changes happening in their body and, and there are symptoms that they that, that they can be having. And it's hard to go from zero to 100 overnight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's a process. And as you go along that process, you find that, yes, th- th- there is this there are some benefits, you know, uh, to eating these foods, even in the context of eating other foods that we may think of as more inflammatory, like the modern meats and dairies that we have today. So it's, it's really, I think, not about labeling the diet or, or, or punishing yourself in any way, but really understanding that this is a process and, hey, these foods, uh, even, even if you eat as much of them as you possibly can eat during the course of your day, on some level, every step you make counts, you know, so every, okay. But you, but you actually said, though, that counts. you think that something like even something like an avocado on, you know, a hamburger, again, you're yep. getting it's kind of neutralizing some of the inflammation from the, the, the burger itself. It can indeed blunt some of that inflammatory response. That's impressive. Correct. What and what is the, the deal with lectins? I mean, as I said, I never really got it. I read his book, Stephen Gundry, and I don't know, it just seemed too overwhelming. It made it sound like. Plant-based dyes are basically, a lot of them are bad for you because there are lectins in there. But, you know, lectins, you know, plants do have substances that are protective for them, but does it mean it's damaging for us? I don't know. It's very confusing. I think I think one of the most important things is to really take uh, the food into context as a whole. So so rather than isolating sort of uh, some of these anti-nutrients have been demonized because we try to isolate them and we look at preclinical studies in which in which uh, we we find uh, some issues with these nutrients. But we also need to look at the fact that we're not eating just the lectins or just the gluten or whatever else it is. We're eating the entire plant food. And that is that that's a food that's filled with fiber, soluble and insoluble fiber, vitamins, minerals, polyphenols, all of these different wonderful components that are so critical to to your body's health. And so we do have to look at the whole food. I mean, I can't think of any food or organism, you know, in this world today that, that, uh, does not have an anti-nutrient, a so-called anti-nutrient. I mean, when you're higher up on the food chain, you tend to build up more toxins, you know, plants protect themselves. They protect themselves from the sun. They protect themselves from predators. Uh, phytochemicals are an expression of this protection and, and plants are going to build up, you know, amazing beneficial compounds, but, but also some anti-nutrients as well. And I think it's important to take, take the whole plant food in, in, into account. You know, the other thing too, uh, when I talk to my patients, because everybody's like, what's the best diet? And I sometimes like to say, 
particularly I'm a big fan of the uh, the Blue Zone Mediterranean diets, but I also like to call it the biblical diet. If it was around in biblical times, it was probably healthy for you. You know, it was like fresher <laughs> meats and, and things of that nature. So what is your feeling? Because I, I have the feeling that also, again, meat has been demonized to some degree. I mean, maybe we we get poor quality, maybe... Again, the portion size that people eat. Sometimes I see when I go to restaurants, I mean, people are eating these like 14 ounce steaks. I don't think that's normal either. But in, you know, in reasonable proportions, four to six ounces, you know, good quality, especially if it's grass fed. Do you, do you think that's problematic for somebody if they have it a couple, like once or twice a month or something? Yeah. So I say to my patients, eat as many plants as you possibly can. And if they're going to eat animal foods, you know, I, I try to have them follow the Mediterranean diet. And, and this is the true Mediterranean diet. And this is, this is the diet that they were following in the 1950s in uh, rural Naples. And this is actually the kind of diet that Ansel Keys was trying to bring over to the U.S. But as we know today, of course, as you know as well, it's, it's been popularized, but it's also, it's also been sort of distorted where we're not eating you know, small quantities of quantities of meat to flavor our food, but we are actually eating that huge steak with a small, tiny iceberg lettuce side salad. So those things have to be reversed where, you know, we are eating as many plant foods as we can. If you can go to 100%, that is great. And if you want, you know, to go down a little bit more and you can't fill up that whole plate, then, you know, just eating as many as you can. And then when you're choosing animal products, choosing the highest quality that you can, when you look at our Paleolithic ancestors and the types of meats that they were eating, like antelope flesh, for example, that antelope flesh had many omega-3s, much less saturated fat, um, and it was very lean. And when you look at the meat that we are eating today, um, you know, from uh, from animals that have been fed antibiotics and fattened up, and it's filled with not only toxins, but tons of saturated fat, not as many omega-3s. So this is a very different kind of meat. So we have to be cognizant of, of those changes. Yeah, makes sense. You know, the again, part of the Mediterranean diet, and I've read in, in many other studies too, that the... Um, like olive oil, for example, is considered to be an excellent oil, you know, has a lot of protective immune properties. And I think there's been a lot, even a lot of studies in breast cancer that they, they feel that it's helped preventive in certain ways. What's your thoughts on that and how much somebody should uh, use olive oil if they use it on their dressings or on their vegetables, things of that nature? I think with olive oil, when it replaces uh, uh, the animal products, uh, the large steaks and and the copious amounts of uh, dairy and eggs, et cetera. I think, I think when it replaces those animal products, it's great uh, because it can help you flavor your vegetables. It, you can certainly use it in dressings. Uh, you can use it in, in your cooking. And, and the medical literature uh, uh, has supported this type of oil over others in general. And it was a traditional oil that was used in the Mediterranean diet. So, uh, so I think in reasonable amounts, uh, certainly if folks want to use olive oil, that could be step in the right direction from from eating too many animal foods and particularly processed animal foods. Then- you know, yeah. You know, one of the people I interviewed also was Dr. Barry Sears. You know, he's a PhD biochemist and he's written a lot of the zone books, which are kind of interesting. He's a very bright guy. And, you know, he started to focus his initial, uh, it was interesting, his initial work like 25 years ago was really on, you know, blunting the the glycemic index and it was really essentially a weight loss uh diet because people lost weight on it by avoiding the carbs which people tend to do and then his his focus and his interest moved to inflammation 
And he wrote several books, you know, the Omega Zone, the anti-inflammatory diet. And, you know, he had a whole thing where a certain amount of proteins, carbs, and fats at every at meal, you know, and he felt that was important. I was just curious, do you have any feelings one way or the other that the proportion of proteins and carbs and, and fats in the diet that helps to make it more anti-inflammatory? I think we know from the, the, there are two particular dietary patterns that I do describe in the book quite specifically. And one is the Mediterranean diet, um, which was, you know, copious amounts of plant foods, uh, very minimal amounts of animal foods. And then also in some cases, maybe um, about close to even a third of calories as, as uh, fat. And a lot of it was from plant fats. And uh, I think I think the type of fat that you eat is, is very, very important, uh, you know, when you look at fat from animal products versus the fat from plants, such as nuts, seeds, and avocados, I think those are two very, very different types of fats with very different effects in your body. So I think focusing on the type of fat that you eat, and then also, also I think being mindful of uh, the fact that we, we are not, you know, uh, trying to promote a high, high fat diet where you're eating all fat and then giving up all your carbs because we know, you know, from, large scale studies that those carbs, the whole grains, the beans, uh, you know, those things, those things from a population health standpoint are so important for us. So, so, uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. And when you look at the Okinawan diet, the Okinawan diet uh, is very low in fat. So that diet, lots and lots of purple potatoes, lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans again, but very little oil even. Really? So, mm. so we know that different types of diets, uh, can actually be quite good for us. So I almost like focusing on not the labels, but, but kind of what you're actually eating in the diet, what you're eating the most of. And that can come with, you know, lower fat, a little bit of higher fat. Uh, but the pattern that predominates is that you're eating mostly plant foods. You know, I do have to say, and this is from personal experience, another person I interviewed, because I, I ended up uh, going out and doing his retreat back in the 1990s, was Dr. Dean Ornish, and he promoted the vegetarian diet and showing that it reduced uh, or could reverse heart disease. And he also, I think at one point, prostate cancer. But I, I, I followed the program for about six, seven years, and it wasn't really good for me. I lost too much weight. I, I just didn't feel well. A lot of issues. And I've noticed that some of my vegetarian patients who are very strict have a lot of mineral and vitamin deficiencies. So I was wondering, like, if you have any thoughts, though, because it is relatively popular in certain parts of the world and even in the United States, the vegetarian diet. Does it, do people have to be careful? Do you, um, you know, so do you think it's still one of the healthiest diets compared to other diets? I absolutely think that a diet that's high in whole plant foods is one of the healthiest diet. In fact, I think it, could be quite the opposite where if you're saturating your body with, you know, tons of modern animal foods, you may actually, you know, you will have many, many deficiencies, not only vitamin and mineral deficiencies, but also deficiencies of things that we are not so accustomed to evaluating like polyphenols, for example. So I do think that high plant food diet uh, can, uh, can be great for bringing all those things into our bodies, but we do have to take a B12 supplement, for example, if you're a vegetarian right. or, or right. vegan, et cetera. Do you have uh, any preference? I, I, patients ask me all the time also to, Dr. Mitchell, what's the best probiotic, uh, you know, and et cetera. And I tell them, unfortunately, I, right now, I feel like in medicine, probiotics are the Wild West. We really don't know. There's, you know, even I think one of the people that you respect a lot, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Justin Sonnenberg, you know, who wrote a book called The Good Gut. 
and uh, you know, very, very bright researcher. But he even said in the book, he goes, he personally doesn't take probiotics. And, you know, some of the people say, well, we think probiotics are best for people that have specific, maybe irritable bowel disease, like with diarrhea, et cetera. So I don't know, what, what was your thinking on probiotics? And are we ready for that yet? Do you think in the future we'll have better options? So for healthy individuals, I generally don't recommend probiotics for healthy individuals. I, I, I tend to recommend just more fermented foods, which can be probiotic and introduce beneficial bacteria into your bodies. Probiotics at, at this stage, where we're at right now, generally used best in disease rather than health. So there are specific disease conditions for which they can be useful. For example, irritable bowel syndrome, there are probiotics that can be used in that case. Inflammatory bowel disease, there are specific probiotics that that, that can help those patients, uh, some cases of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. But in general, for the average healthy patient that walks into my clinic, uh, I, I generally don't recommend that they take a routine probiotic. Interesting. What do you like for irritable bowel disease? Let's say, is there a specific brand like a line or um, BSL number three? That's what I tend to recommend. Is there any specific ones that are certain bacteria yeah. that you're looking for? So Align has been studied in clinical trials in uh, irritable bowel syndrome. So that is the one that I do recommend. And in inflammatory bowel disease, I tend to recommend a BSL-3. Oh, you do? Interesting. Yes, okay. I do. Oh, okay. That's really good. I think it's good for the listeners to know, too. Um, question now that we're talking about this, too, because we're making so many nice, uh, you know, uh, transitions. You know, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, as you well know, as a gastroenterology specialist, it can be devastating disease. And in back, I just met a colleague, another doctor who uh, had Crohn's disease in her 20s and even went through medical school with it. But the only way that she could get through it was with high dose steroids. And you know, she ended up becoming diabetic and, you know, she thank God she's alive now, but it was, it took its toll. You know, today we have some incredible treatments, you know, with monoclonal antibodies uh, that are just revolutionizing, you know, this condition. But I'm just curious what your view is on these medications because they are quite potent immune modulating drugs. Do you think they are a medication that in a lot of cases are needed for a lifetime? Do you think that they should be transitioned to something else? Um, what's your thoughts, you know, on the Humeris and the Enbrils, you know, all yeah. these things that you, we see on TV all the time? So I think, you know, one of one of the problems is that with, with Crohn's disease, and particularly when you see a young patient walking into the office with, with uh moderate or severe Crohn's disease. Uh, this is a, this is a very serious disorder and we want to ensure that these patients are not only in clinical remission, but also in endoscopic remission, meaning we don't want to see inflammation in their colons and, and, and their GI tracts when, when we do the endoscopies and we want to make sure that they don't develop complications from this disorder. And that's one of the big things that we, that we focus on. We want to make sure that they don't lose most or all of their intestines. And that can lead, you know, obviously down the line to things like maybe requiring an intestinal transplant. And I've seen, uh, several patients at, at that end of the spectrum who, who have literally you know, suffered so much all of their lives. And, and so I think the risk benefit ratio of these drugs should be weighed for each individual patient. And certainly they are great drugs when they are deployed accordingly and, and they can help patients, you know, uh, they can help stave off losing the intestines. They can keep patients in remission. And so, uh, they should be used uh, judiciously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I knew someone, um, 
who had suffered with ulcerative colitis. He was British. He had come over, and, you know, for some treatments. And uh, unfortunately, later on, he passed because he ended up getting uh, cirrhosis of the liver. So, I mean, people don't even realize that these inflammatory bowel diseases that go within the GI tract or obviously other areas, which could be really deadly, you know, without treatment. So, yeah, I think it's they are huge yeah. game changers. What's your thoughts about the proton pump inhibitors? I'm I'm not a big fan. You know, I think that they've been overused. Like I tell the story. I don't know. You're you're much younger than I am, but you know, when I was in medical school and we were doing pharmacology, and at the time, the big drugs, <laughs> I'm going to date myself, were the H2 blockers, like ranitidine. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like, wow, this is the new breakthrough, you know, instead. And then they were talking about, it would be like a, a one-hour lecture, like, and there's this other thing that we're coming up with that we're going to use for this condition called Zollinger-Ellison, which I know you know of, but it's where you have tumors on the pancreas and they secrete Mm -hmm. so much gastrin that it causes ulcers in the stomach. And this drug is going to be amazing. So I remember like in medical school, like watching like, wow, this is really cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And then several years later, probably toward the end of my residency in medicine, uh, I saw that they started to come out with it, you know, because again, we were mainly using H2 blockers. And then before you know it, this medicine that was intended for this rare condition, for these very serious things, is now commonplace used for gastric reflux, let alone ulcers. And now it's over the counter. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, and I, I see a lot of problems with this. I'm just curious what you think or how you advise your patients that are on uh, you know, what we call the PP, um, PPIs, such as Prilosec, Nexiums. Are you concerned? Do you? I am concerned that they could be overused. This reminds me of the commercial that you see sometimes where, where people are encouraged to eat whatever they want, but you know, we have PPIs out there to fix it. Just have whatever you want and maintain yourself on a PPI. So I, I, I think that there are specific indications for proton pump inhibitors. You know, they can, they can be essential, you know, in healing ulcers and in different clinical contexts, but we do over tend to overuse them in the modern age. Uh, they're very easy to use. And I do think that we are also learning more in the literature about some of the problems that these drugs may pose, uh, some of the associations that we've seen with uh, Clostridium difficile infection or osteoporosis or kidney disorders. And, you know, we have, we have that acid in the stomach there for a reason. And to suppress that chronically uh, may have manifestations down the line. But I, I do prescribe them for patients who absolutely need them. That means that if I have gone through all of the dietary and lifestyle advice and patients are maximizing that arm of treatment and they simply cannot find relief, uh, you know, they can be prescribed the lowest dose of a proton pump inhibitor that will help them. But I think there are a lot of cases in which you find that they're, they're being used all, all, all the time. So, so oftentimes I'll try to bring patients down and off right, the proton pump right. inhibitor. I, I just did a podcast, a solo one, where I said, talk to patients. And I said, the most dangerous medications in your medicine cabinet, a lot of times are the over-the-counter medications because patients just can take it at will without being under the supervision of a doctor and could be masking some things or not realizing the side effects of taking something long-term. So that that's where my concern comes in. My question mm-hmm. for you also, uh, you know, I get a lot of patients that always ask me about stool analysis and I don't really do very much because I found it very limiting. I mean, the only things when I see one of those stool analysis by, by like a company, Genova, 
I look to see if there's a, what's called an elevated calprotectin, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You know, it's been associated mm-hmm. with, I think it's Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease. But other than that, I don't know, the butyrate levels, the bifidobacter levels and some of these things, they, they don't really mean a lot to me. Do you, do you use stool, stool analysis, you know, in any which way to, to guide you on how to, you know, take care of patients? I generally don't recommend it. For my patients, uh, you know, patients will come in and they purchase these expensive stool kits from Amazon that will tell them what strains of bacteria they have in their gut and, and how to optimize that. And generally I say you're probably wasting your money. Uh, we, we are just not there yet with the science and, and understanding how these types of tests can actually change our clinical management and, and our advice to patients. Yeah. You know what I find very exciting, though, is the breath testing. Uh, I'm sure, again, you know, you're familiar with the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth like SIBO and H. pylori. So it's kind of fascinating how capturing the breath can help analyze what's going on with the patient's digestive system. Do you see that as a potential uh, future area? I think that's, I think uh, the the breath testing is very favorable, in, in my opinion, especially with diseases like SIBO, because with bacterial overgrowth, rather than empirically treating patients a lot of times with antibiotics, and as we know, antibiotics have the potential to damage the gut microbiome, wipe out entire species. So they're incredibly useful for actually establishing the diagnosis of bacterial overgrowth, or even just food intolerances and and things like fructose intolerance, for example, uh, sometimes it's more prevalent than we actually think it is. And, and patients, uh, can go undiagnosed uh, for years with fructose intolerances and things like that. So I think breath testing in, in general has been pretty useful. You know, one of the things that I see in my practice, and I, I really have it under the guise of immunology, is that I unfortunately see a lot of patients with, uh, I would call it gut dysbiosis from overuse of antibiotics. And I see that in the cases of where even young people who've been on uh, tetracycline or doxycycline for, for acne for a year or two. I've seen it on patients that have gotten long courses of those medications for Lyme disease. And, uh, they tend to get uh, what I find is a dysbiosis. Um, there's a doctor in Georgia, Satish Rao, who's talked about, um, what he calls CIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, where they're finding yeast overgrowing. In the symptom, in their system. And I, a lot of times will use antifungal medications to try to rebalance their system. I was just curious, again, the kind of patients that you're seeing, especially transplant patients, you know, who are immune suppressed. Do you need to ever use antifungals to rebalance them or to control what's going on? Well, I do know with the specific populations that I have cared for, uh, in the past, you know, patients, short bowel syndrome patients who, who, who may or may not even intestinal transplant, uh, sometimes those patients are so sick from, you know, frequent Lyme infections. Uh, they're on TPN, for example. And uh, I've used antifungals uh, prophylactically in those you contexts have. as well, but, mm. but more to prevent uh, bloodstream infections in these patients, which can be very, very dangerous for them. And even post-transplant, because they are immunosuppressed, uh, we, we right. want to make sure that we keep, keep a close eye on any brewing infections. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here as we're finishing up. What what is your anti-inflammatory diet? Your personal one? I, like, and I ask my patients all the time, "What's your breakfast, lunch, and dinner?" So I'm just curious, what is Dr. Ravella's um, a typical a typical meal in Hawaii, where you are now? <laughs> sure. Well, I I think one of one of uh, 
the great things about Hilo is that we find so many different fruits everywhere. I mean, you go to the farmer's market and, you know, we find all of these different varieties of papayas and uh, bananas. And we have these apple bananas that are that are kind of smaller and sweeter even than uh, the typical uh, bananas that you would find on mainland. But but one of the true joys has been just to see the diversity of produce here. And I try to incorporate that into my daily diet whenever I can. So lots and lots of fresh fruits, uh, lots of vegetables. And you can just, you know, go to the farmer's market again, take a bunch of vegetables and cook it in a million different ways. Mm. Uh, uh, legumes are, are a cornerstone as well. You know, just very simple uh, soups. And uh, traditionally, uh, my family cooks uh, dal, which is like a lentil soup, and it can you can make it in, you know, 20 different ways and, and fermentation of foods as well. So just like the fermented sourdough, there are fermented foods in all different cultures. And, and I grew up eating a fermented kind of uh, lentil patty that my mother used to make and called it dosa. And, and that's been very interesting as well for anti-inflammatory standpoint. I think this is great advice for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Ravella, thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time to do the podcast. I know you're super busy doing a lot of great work in Hawaii. As you mentioned, you're working in a rural health area and, you know, long, then you come back to New York and work in, in the super academic Columbia Presbyterian, which is one of the, where I trained and it's just a great place. Um, I highly recommend your book to anybody that really wants to understand the microbiome and gut immunology. Um, is there anywhere else our listeners can go to follow more of your work? Sure. Uh, if you just go to www.shilparavella.com, it's just my name. I have a uh, blog on that site and I have uh, some tips and uh, some some uh, posts that I write about uh, various disorders on that site. Mm-hmm. Do you think a cookbook's coming out after the silent fire or are you not up for that yet? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. 